Revelation 2. I'll be reading verses 8 through 11. I'll give you a second to turn there. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. The Word of God says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you, uh, throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, as we hear your word preached this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear by your spirit, that you would give us faith and strength that we might be able to withstand tribulation of any kind. Give us changeable hearts. As we hear your word today, help us to not leave unturned. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Encouraging the church, calling the church to endure, to be overcomers, both in word and in deed, that they would indeed overcome, namely in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Remember, these are seven actual churches with, or at least groups of churches in specific areas with real things going on. And yet, at the same time, they serve for us representative congregations groups of congregations that really, as the Lord looks at them and speaks to their strengths and their weaknesses, they represent for us the full spectrum of what the church is going to struggle with, of the challenges, the weaknesses, the strengths of how this church is going to thrive and going to endure in this age that is passing away. So it gives us a pretty comprehensive view of what we as a church right now are facing. Remember in Revelation, it says, This is given to the church in the latter days. This is us. The church in this age that is passing away, awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, and we are told to endure. If you remember, there was a few listening pointers, and I want to just remind us of those three ways that we might listen in order to get the most out of letters to the seven churches, one is to listen to all the churches. Listen to all the churches. We're encouraged that way. Hear what the Lord says to the churches. The temptation always is this. We said this last time. The temptation is always this. That when the Lord speaks, you're going to find the church that when He speaks to their weakness, that happens to be their our strength as a church or yours as an individual. Because it's easier to hear God talk about weaknesses when they're not your weaknesses, they're someone else. That's going to be the temptation is to find the church that aligns the most with who we are right now and, and just look at the strength. He says, listen to all of the churches. Because we are going to share in some of the weaknesses, we are going to share in some of the strengths. So as an individual Christian, listen with your own ears for you. Redeemer, might we take this and apply it to Redeemer? 
went to the church down the street. He said last time, I heard an older pastor say once that he's ruined a lot of sermons by listening with someone else's ears. That's always the temptation. You hear something and immediately your mind goes to that person. Boy, they need to hear this. So let us listen to the church. And secondly, God does not tear down our strengths in order to highlight our weaknesses. By that, as we look at these churches, there's going to be strengths, there's going to be weaknesses. He's going to commend them and he's going to rebuke them. The temptation of the individual, the church, is to think, okay, the Lord says this is my strength, but this is my weakness. I need to sort of take away from this strength and address this weakness. So the church at Ephesus, if you remember, he says, we looked at that last time, they are strong in theology. They've given themselves to the Word. They defend the faith. They, they are ready for the false teachers to come in to hear he has against them. That they fail to keep the love that they had at first. That outward-looking love, that being a light to others. Now the goal is this. Don't worry about the doctrine. Just love. No, it's, this is a strength. Keep it as a strength that adds this to it. And so as we hear the strengths and the weaknesses, it is not taking away the strength to address the weakness. And finally, third thing to help us remember the awe-inspiring, allegiance-inspiring picture of Christ was given to us at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1. This isn't a small, weak Jesus made after our own image, who we kind of let fit into our life as makes sense for us. This is an awe-inspiring, all-powerful Alpha and Omega, the faithful witness, the one who died and has risen again. This is the one, even as we read in the psalm, who should put fear in our hearts with this awe-inspiring greatness and demands on our lives, and then at the same time turn that fear to joy when we realize this God is for us and not against us. But if you're going to produce change, if we're going to produce allegiance and endurance, in the midst of difficulty, in the age that is passing away, we need a Christ, we need the real picture of Jesus that is much more beautiful than just a, a needy God who would love a little bit of your attention if you would be so kind. That is not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let's remember that picture. History tells us of a young man from the city <clears throat> Smyrna, who God called to gospel ministry in that very city. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp is an interesting person in church history because he's probably the most well-known figure that bridges that gap between New Testament history and the early church fathers. And I, I like that, Eric, it kind of puts us in the mindset to realize that New Testament people, these are real people, not just Bible stories for us. But Polycarp, as a young man, was mentored by John, the Apostle, the very author of, or recorder of this vision in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Polycarp, as a young man, was mentored by him, and then Polycarp stayed in Smyrna, and he ministered there faithfully in Smyrna for many, many years. In early literature, there is a, a work called The Martyr the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's included kind of the first historical document of someone's martyrdom. It's included in the literature of the early church fathers, and it lays out how Polycarp was martyred for 86 years. I don't know how many of those 
Jesus who ministered in Smyrna. But for a long time, at the age of 86, after faithfully ministering in Smyrna, in a town, in a city, as we will see, that was dead set against Christianity, facing all kinds of opposition and objection from inside and from out. Hard, difficult ministry. For 86 years, Polycarp ministered there. He's on a trip, and in that trip, he is arrested, and he is taken to Rome. And in Rome, they question him again and again and try to get him to say that phrase, Caesar is Lord, reject what he has been teaching. And Polycarp won't do it if he just continues to say, no, Jesus is Lord. They threaten him with imprisonment, and they threaten him with all kinds of things, and finally they threaten him with death in the arena of Rome. This is just some 60 years after John would write this down for us in Revelation 2. Some 60 years later, during the reign of Marcus Julius, Polycarp is brought to Rome. They ask him to renounce Christ, and he says this, Eighty and six years I have served him, and never once has he wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? And with that, Polycarp is doomed to escape. By any measure, no matter how you look at it, Smyrna is an incredibly difficult place for people to live out their Christian life. It was at the time of Polycarp, and it was 60 years earlier as John would write this letter. Just reading it, the, the little section here in this letter, you can see that that is the case. The city of Smyrna, this quick little history, the city of Smyrna is in Asia Minor, and as Rome came in and took over that area, Smyrna was kind of like, you see it on TV or something, and they, they catch eight guys in the mafia. And there's always that one guy who wants to be the first to catch in order to you know, get off well. That's Smyrna. As soon as Rome came in, they were like, you are welcome here. We are on your team. And so Smyrna became this really very influential Roman area in Asia Minor. In fact, the first temple to Rome in Asia Minor was built in Smyrna. And so Christians who were dispersed from Rome, who had fled and would end up in Smyrna, would find it very little different than actually being in Rome itself. There's multiple temples to Rome and the allegiance that is there. You see also there is a large Jewish population in Smyrna. Perhaps you remember, as you heard Adam read it just a minute ago, it says that they have received slander from those who call themselves Jews and who are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Going on Old Testament, is a New Testament theology there that something ethnic that, that Jesus is talking about here, something spiritual. It's to be a true child of Abraham, which is not by ethnicity, but is by faith. And he would say they are not true Jews here, because they are not by faith. And the Jewish people had a unique relationship with the Roman Empire. You may have heard this, but the Roman Empire allowed this little religious sect to exist. Pretty, uh, with a lot of Christian because they could have agreed, we'll, we'll just pay the feast and those things to Caesar, but religiously over here we'll keep our own uh, way of life. But as things go quickly, that got all mixed together, and there became very little distinction between Jews of that age and the worship of Caesar. 
Christians begin to populate a little bit in the area, they are quick to point out, these aren't Jews, they don't get our protection. They weren't looking to have any of them converted to Christianity, so they point out to, to the leaders, the demons, these are Christians, you need to deal with them. So the church is facing this sort of opposition. Look at the language that is used. Where it says he knows their tribulation, that they are facing slander. Their testimony is being besmirched. They, they are facing accusation and slander as the Christians. They are facing poverty. That is, that they, they are shut out from the normal business and commerce and trade and, and ownership and things that would take place because they are Christians. They, they are counting the cost. They are excluded from that. They are facing slander. They are facing poverty. They are frightened. So it tells them not to fear. Don't be scared. They're obviously frightened. These aren't some, again, mega-Christians, just because we read about them in, in the New Testament. They're flesh and bone like us. They would be scared. They would be frightened by the opposition. The passage goes on. Sad as it is, they can expect this suffering, prison, and very possibly death. And so you have Smyrna, a relatively small church, one that isn't highly influential in the sense that they exist in an area that's against them. In this small church without a huge amount of influence, with no bright shining stars in it, as God directs His Word to them, you'll see it's only Smyrna and Philadelphia that God commends but does not refuse. And it's only those two churches, and both of them are small, struggling churches. And it's not just because they're small that God doesn't refuse them. But God encourages them in their faith to endure in the midst of this opposition. It's interesting as we look at the letter that, you know, if it were me writing it, or a pastor writing a letter, it would, I'm sure it would read like a letter of condolence. Like, I'm so sorry that this is what you're going through. I'm sorry if I feel maybe I was responsible. It's just this letter of condolence that I can't believe this takes place. I'm so sorry. I hope it's news. It's not the letter that Jesus wrote. Here's a different reality of the situation. It's the expectation. It is the calling of a Christian. That there will be some sense of opposition. There will be suffering. Suffering both specific to your testimony as a Christian and suffering in some sense of just trying to live as a Christian in this age that is passing away. Just the suffering that attends this life. Jesus doesn't offer a letter of, of condolence, but encouragement that this is to be expected and this is their calling. I want to just look at four things how Jesus relates to us in suffering, and then we'll make a few applications. Notice right off the bat in verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus knows your suffering. Often, one of the struggles when people are really going through something difficult is they feel alone in it. They feel that people don't care, that no one can understand. As if, even at times, that, that Jesus is just, that the 
Lord just is uninterested or, or is not near in their suffering. And he begins by saying, Jesus knows. I know. I am aware. I understand what is going on in your life. I'm not careless towards it. It is not out of my control. I know. That's why you're suffering, even if it's the most difficult thing to do, you turn to Jesus because He knows. He is near. And so Jesus begins, I know your suffering. It might feel like it's gone unnoticed by others. It might feel like you're hurting, but Jesus knows. Secondly, Jesus has a design for your suffering. He has a design for your suffering. We are quick when we go through difficult times, when there is opposition, when there are difficult things in our life, we are quick to put a human face and name with our problems. This person is what is opposing me. This person is the cause of my suffering. I'll never forget, early on in ministry here, going through some difficult times, and meeting with someone, and as a, you know, whatever, 27-year-old pastor who just knew it all, looking at them and telling them, you're really stealing my joy in the ministry. I'm feeling good about saying that. And then 48 hours later, or however long it took them, and I'm thinking, I knew that was going to happen. That, like, somehow my meaningfulness, my joy, the success that I do in ministry, is because this person recognizes how meaningful it is. As long as they don't oppose me, then I have joy in the I'm putting my hope in the wrong spot. And secondly, I'm, I'm not understanding the battle properly. Then it's this face, this person, this name, that I think this is what is meant to be a ministry. This person. Just remember and remind you that Jesus that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against evil, principalities. And that's what takes place here is, is John or Jesus that will pull back the curtain for them, as it were. He says they say they are Jews, but they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. In verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It is the designs of Satan at work here. It is evil and darkness. That's what stands against us. That we would love to shipwreck our faith. And if we can put a person's name on it and focus all our energy on overcoming that person, we uh, trying to fight that person instead of realizing the darkness and the attack upon our own faith. But that's really what's at stake here. And John points out, Jesus points out, the devil is looking to shipwreck your faith. He is attacking you. You need to stand firm and you need to stay strong, and yet even behind that, Satan does not operate outside of the sovereign control and work of Jesus Christ. So it says there, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. You may be tested. God's design for us in the Christian life is testing. Somewhat averse to it. Some will be surprised when suffering comes, and yet we are told to 
again and again in the New Testament, we should expect it. It is part of our calling. If you are a Christian, you will count the cost. You will bear the cross. You will suffer for His name's sake. Our suffering might seem minuscule in America compared to other places, but there will be some suffering associated with it. And maybe for you, the suffering feels intense. It should not be surprising. And God's design is not to protect us from every wave of suffering that might come. It's not to let us that we feel no effect from it, but that He would be faithful, that He would care for us, that He would know us and be near us and use it to accomplish His will. You know, James tells us, count it all joy, my brother, when you face trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We just covered it in First Peter. When all kinds of trials come, it will be, as it says in First Peter, you will face necessary trials of all various kinds. Not random, not just you, you perhaps will. They are necessary. And here's what they are necessary for. They are necessary for the endurance of your faith. They are that fire, that, that fire that refines, that exposes the idols in your heart, where your faith, where your hope, other places where your hope is resting, where your faith is resting. Bitterness that would, would cloud out being able to fight Satan and see Christ's design because we're focused on others. And as those rise to the surface in the heat of the trial, the Lord takes them to away that dross and purifies that life in order that you might endure to the end. In order that your faith might not be shipwrecked. And so there is a testing that Jesus has that He designs our suffering for. Part of the reason why is it introduces this prayer, verse 8, is the words of the first and the last. He is the sovereign one, the Alpha and the Omega. His design will take place in your life. Third, Jesus sets the boundaries of your suffering. It's an interesting little phrase there, but it says in verse 10 again, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. I don't think that it's a specific ten days, perhaps it maybe was, but I think it speaks to a couple different things, and mainly to that there is a limit to your suffering. It doesn't just go on and on and on. Perhaps it goes on as long as this lifetime. But in view of eternity, it is but ten days, it's but ten minutes. He sets the boundaries of your suffering. As one commentator said, our suffering may test our limits, but there are always limits to our suffering. And that is that they will accomplish God's design. That's not said to try to take the edge off, but oh, it's not that big a deal. It'll pass quickly. Sometimes the valley of the shadow of death is long and difficult in this age. And yet God is sovereign in setting the boundaries. It's interesting here that if he says for ten days you'll be tested, and I mean, the, the point is, I think, that within the specific context, is they're not just thrown into prison as their ongoing lifetime sentence. 
they're in there, they're being tested for 10 days, and then they will face the trial. And the outcome might be death. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake, but somehow, you, you know, you get credit just for going through something difficult. It's suffering to this end. Look at the end of verse 10 and 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death.
publicly in the middle of Christian earth to be shaping your life into your own image. The real thousands of Christians they have in prison in this notorious work camp. Hebrews tells us that Christians around the world are suffering. It says, remember them as though you are chained with them. Remember the persecuted church. Pray for them. Secondly, be faithful in your own limited times of persecution. Pray for that faithfulness. Keep that mindset, that perspective, that it is God's design and He's working it out in your life. Be prayerful of that. Do your best to keep that perspective. You're suffering, you're oppressing. Is it that person and that opportunity that's your enemy? Satan and darkness is your enemy. Christ is working in you for his good pleasure. Thirdly, again, I know it's easy to say don't do that, but the Spirit is in you to empower you. But be courageous in the face of opposition and suffering. that we would be courageous, that we would grow in our courage. I think the only way to do this, again, where I, I was in a conversation, I forget where I say it, someone just said, I think they were talking about Ukraine president or something like that, and they were just saying, we all like to think how we might react to something really difficult in time, but we don't really know when something really hard happens, how we'll react. And we probably be in some ways surprised by our courage, and in other ways really surprised by our cowardice. And I think the only way to be prepared to die for Christ is to be dying to self every day. I think a lot of us think if someone pointed a gun at me right now, I would and said, renounce Christ or die, I would say, Those are day-to-day decisions, but it's to be honest that we choose to lie. You know, don't pursue that conversation, but we pursue that conversation. Don't look on those things, but we, we look on those things. And I know those things are battles, and it's not just a matter of saying you won't do it, you won't do it. But put into to practice the means of grace, declare warfare on those things in your life that by the Spirit dependent, by doing all taking all the means you can to declare war on sins in your life, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I think in a very normal way, we don't know how we will react, but if you want to be ready to die for Christ, then day to day put to death the deeds of the flesh so the world knows. And then just remember, escaping the first death is not the goal. Escaping suffering is not the goal. I'm not saying you need to go out and look for it, or that you have to love it when it happens. But God is using it, and He's using it for the real goal, and that's escaping the second death, which is judgment. That's where Paul Hughes says this, he says that we do have an ear to hear. Let him hear Thank you.
God and deal with the God of the His suffering is the gospel. Let's celebrate that as a moment. He suffered for us, and He died for us. That's where our hope rests in Christ and what He did. Come on, we're in prayer and then together after that, we're not going to worship our church, but we will together Lord, we thank you for your word. May you give us courage this morning. Lord, might we in our limited persecution be faithful. Lord, call us to endure. Might we see Jesus crucified and suffering. Might we know, Lord, that indeed he knows what we are going through. He sets the boundaries for us. In the end, Lord, with new heavens and a new earth, Found hidden in the shadow of the cross, hidden in the shadow of 